If you have a Bible, we're going to get into Acts chapter 13 and uh, jump right into our text tonight. We're coming off of a pretty incredible and powerful conversation um, about the Apostle Paul's um, motives and uh, ambition and uh, really uh, how he uh, changed his whole life, uh, changed his whole agenda and his presentation even to get the gospel to more people in more places. Uh, And tonight we're going to see that uh, reiterated again. Um, uh, I've titled this message game face because I think there's uh, no other chapter it do we just see Paul with just the grit and determination that is on display in this chapter um, uh, we referenced that scripture in first Corinthians 9 last week where Paul says I'm like a boxer and I'm not just punching to beat the air I'm actually I'm focusing on um, my goal my agenda um, uh, many believe Paul was an athlete uh, and uh, not it wasn't an Olympian but uh, there were uh, kind of the minor leagues that would have taken place there in, in, in the Corinthian areas. Uh, many believe that Paul was a part of those tournaments, uh, whether before he was a, 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 an evangelist or during his evangelistic time. Um, and many believe that Paul um, used those analogies of competing in athletics to describe his own, um, uh, you know, in his own focus and his own kind of discipline that he put himself through and uh, his determination to, uh, to, to press on when things got difficult. Uh, so we're going to see Paul's game face tonight uh, and hopefully the goal is that we adopt that same game face uh, for our own lives and tonight's going to be a little bit more individualistic um, focused uh, than maybe collectively focused that's not a bad thing uh, the church of course we are a body but we also are individual members and we've got individual responsibility to bear so tonight we're going to focus a little bit more on what we individually bring to the table um, uh, as we see how Paul himself um, uh, kind of uh, played his part and and uh, and and represented um, and represents us all in, in our own respective um, role. So I want to read verse uh, chapter thirteen, verse number thirteen, um, as we we see this uh, what many refer to as his first missionary journey begin. Uh, most of you in the back of your Bibles, there's a map or maps, and one of the maps is Paul's missionary journeys, and uh, there's probably um, three or four lines that represent the different journeys that he took. The fourth line is not really a journey as much as it is him just going, um, him being taken as a prisoner to Rome, um, but nonetheless he used it for missions. So this is the first one. Uh, we'll look at a map in a little bit that, that, that tracks his, uh, his route. Um, but verse 13 is uh, kind of the, the, the initial liftoff or sendoff uh, for Paul and his very small team that right out of the gate gets smaller. Verse 13 reads, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, that's John Mark, departed from them, returned to Jerusalem. So right out of the gate, we're told that they set sail and one of their members, one of the team members, and we don't know, but three of them, maybe there were more, but we know that there were three on this team, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. Uh, One of them decides, I'm not gonna go any further as if he actually went far to begin with. Uh, We're introduced to this new phase. Uh, Luke gets the story moving pretty swiftly. Uh, And as Paul and his team, 
start to make progress, uh, we're told somebody already wants to bail out. Now, again, this is John Mark, um, Mark, who we know uh, for, for good reasons uh, or for good things because he wrote the gospel of Mark um, by way of Peter's narration. Mark was the one whose mother housed the church there in Jerusalem back in Acts 12. So Mark has been an integral member and part of the church for whatever reason. Uh, he had joined the team. We don't really see when he joins, but we're told that he's a part of this team. Um, so he made his way from Jerusalem to Antioch to join this missionary team. Uh, that Paul and Barnabas were embarking on uh, and, and that were establishing for whatever reason, uh, whether he was cold, had cold feet or whether he just lost interest, he bails out before they e ever get started. Now, again, we want to look at that in a negative way, and I'm not, I don't think whether we should or not, that's what we're going to, it's what we naturally will do when we hear people criticize Mark. And later on in Acts, we're actually going to see Paul and Barnabas get in a dispute over Mark's re-addition to the team. One says yes, one says no, and they split as a result. So clearly this is a contentious issue and a contentious subject. Um, and clearly Mark didn't leave the team for good reasons, I think we can imply. Um, but, but the next verse, the next verse uh, is very important uh, because it, it, it will call back to our conversation from last week that we're going to recap a little bit and that will kind of establish our, our, our motive tonight and, and move us forward. Um, and it's not so much how it says it, but it's what it says. So verse 13 tells us that John Mark left, but verse 14 tells us, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, th that might not really jump off the page at you, but the point is they don't let Mark's departure really impact them a bit. They don't let their team going from three to two impact them in a negative way in the least bit. From verse 13, Mark leaves and then verse 14 says, but they departed. And what I think we're supposed to get from this, and I think what Luke wants us to get from this, yes, Mark left and that wasn't the you know, most encouraging thing and that probably wasn't the, didn't make them feel the best, but they went on. And I think this is important for us to remember in our Christian journeys because sometimes there are gonna be people that disappoint us and there are gonna be people that don't pull their weight and they're going to be people, whether part of something uh, that we're doing outside of the church or a part of the church, Paul and Barnabas could have become obsessed, engaged or enraged, preoccupied and discouraged. They could have been dissuaded from even doing anything after losing a member as soon as they got started, already few in number, I mean, that's not a good way to start things off, but they don't skip a beat. I, I feel like if this was in the modern world, then there would be an entire meltdown in verse 14 if it was our story. I mean, we can't go forward. We can't do this. I mean, we lost someone that was integral to our team. How in the world would he disappoint us like this? We would become so preoccupied with wondering why he did this and maybe even getting, given, you know, getting back at him or, or, or you know, trying to discipline him in some way. But they don't skip a beat. And think about what we do. We'd get mad. We'd lose focus. We'd lose heart. But their inspiration and their motivation shouldn't be surprising, especially if you were here with us last week. I got to say, before we get too far into this, if you weren't with us last week, you need to check out the archives uh, because that's going to be a banner over our conversation throughout the book of Acts. But, uh, but 
And God's word, of course, reiterates those themes again and again. But, but Acts 13 is the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. But there's something bigger going on here. This is the beginning of the Gentile missions. And, and I want us to focus on what was driving Paul. And I want us to try to get, get underneath that. And I want us to see if we can adopt that same uh, you know, thing that was driving him. I want us to see if we can bring that same spirit onto us because it is so crucial uh, that we have what he had. And, and, and it's important to understand that the success of the missions that we read about in Acts were 100% contingent on the spirit behind the missions, not just the Holy Spirit that was above all of them, but the Holy Spirit that was working through them. The Holy Spirit back in the first part of 13 called out for Barnabas and uh, Paul to uh, be sent on this mission. And, and just 10 verses into this chapter, we see that Saul has become Paul and Paul is now the leader of the team. And a few verses later, a, a team member bails. You know, what these quick changes I think make clear to us is that Paul, especially in his team, they weren't just being led by the Spirit, but they were moving by the Spirit. That, that they weren't just being, you know, trying to follow along and figure it out as they went, but the Spirit of God was working in them and through them. And every step they took, they were leaning on Him and relying on Him. But I want to make this distinction. I want to make this very clear because, again, what Paul was doing was leaning on the Holy Spirit in a way that the church in our age doesn't do. And I'm not trying to equate Paul with the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. Paul was just a man. But it's very clear that Paul was moving by and filled by the Holy Spirit. So I think it's, 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 it's okay to kind of group the two together here because Paul was walking in the Spirit and living by the Spirit. He didn't teach on those as a hypocrite. He taught on those truths as someone who lived by those things himself. But the thing about this and the thing that we got to understand is the Holy Spirit wants things done his way or no way. He doesn't just give advice. He gives the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm not just some options. I'm not just some considerations. He says, I am the way. And when the Holy Spirit gives us a vision or gives us a, a word or gives us a plan, he wants it done his way or no way. And the early church understood that. And I think it's important for us to understand because it eliminates the excuses that are easy to make and when roadblocks are established or when roadblocks come about. And the reason why I think this really comes to mind with this conversation is because I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of this early team. They're right off, the, they're, they're getting started, they're getting out of the gate and somebody bails on them before they even get to the first town and all of a sudden there's some, there's, some, there's some disruption and there's a lack of confidence in the team. And I would imagine that if you or I would have been there, we would have been questioning whether or not we wanna move forward. And when we allow that to set up, when we allow that, that, that doubt and that discouragement to take root, the Holy Spirit will begin to, to make his presence known, maybe not in a good way, but in a way that may frustrate us to make us aware that it's his way or no way we didn't see Paul struggle with this, but I'm trying to say, I'm trying to paint a picture of what it would have been like had they relented or had they maybe doubted. The thing about the Holy Spirit is he will frustrate us if we have not surrendered and been transformed by him. The Holy Spirit doesn't hold us back because somebody else, he holds us back because of us. And my point is this, that when we as the church often look over our shoulders, 
we often begin to point the fingers. Well, the reason why things aren't going the way they should go is because somebody isn't doing what they should do. We often deflect our own responsibility onto somebody else. We often look around and say, well, someone else isn't being responsible. Therefore, that's hindering our own progress. But we don't see that in Paul's life, do we? That when, when Mark bails out, we don't see that Paul and Barnabas all of a sudden start worrying, wow, if he's not in, then we're not, something's going to happen. We just see they move forward. We see they have a determination about themselves that we're not going to let one person hold us back. We're going to move forward with that much more determination and with that much more focus. You know, I hear that as a pastor, and this is maybe a little bit me getting some stuff off my chest. I hear this as a pastor a lot. I talk to other pastors who hear this a lot. When churches are not, when things aren't going as maybe people would want them to go, maybe uh, people begin to look around and say, well, hey, you know, this could happen, that could happen. Most of the time, people say, well, the church is being held back by somebody besides me. Now, that's what religion says. I'm not saying you say this. It's just something that we are naturally inclined to say. And I love when people come to me and they point the finger at somebody else being the reason why the church isn't moving. My question always is, what are they doing that's keeping you from doing what you should be doing? It's a pretty big question, isn't it? As a pastor, I ask myself this all the time because as a pastor, it's easy for me to say, well, God, if they would do what they should do, then things would be better. But God asks me this question all the time. I mean, I don't hear God's voice audibly outside of his word, but I, I pretty clearly hear God through the spirit ask me this question a lot. What are they doing that's keeping you from doing what you should be doing? I mean, put yourself in Bar Paul and Barnabas's shoes. The only other member bails out. They could have decided the mission was doomed before it even began. They could have blamed him. But what do they do? They move forward. You know how often as Christians we stop moving forward because somebody else has stopped moving forward? And we look at them as the reason why we're being held back whenever we have just stopped and stood still. You see, we're tempted to get distracted and caught up in the emotion of it all. Anytime we're a part of something bigger than us, we have two options. We have two options, and this, this is true for your marriages. This is true for your, your you know, workplace. This is definitely true for your church. We have two options. We can keep our eyes on our collective goal or our eyes will drift towards selective obstacles. That if we do not keep our eyes on our collective goal, we will, we will, we will begin to look around selective obstacles. And, and let me translate that for you. If I don't keep my focus on what God has called me to do as a member of his kingdom, as a member of his church, as a member of a greater family, if I don't keep my eyes on the goal God has for me as a member that I have been called to do a specific thing, my eyes will drift towards selective obstacles. And you know what happens in the situation in churches? It's almost always the case. Look at how they're holding me back. Look at how they're holding us back. To which God says again, how are they holding you back? Well, they're not stopping me at all, but you see they're not living right. And you see what I'm bringing to the table isn't getting enough attention because what they're not bringing to the table is detracting from the whole story. That's what our flesh is always proposing in religious situations. And that happens in your marriages, doesn't it? That when somebody else doesn't bring what you expect them to, you 
feel like what you bring doesn't get the attention it should. Let me try to be nice about this, but do you really think that's how it works? The church grows and moves forward because of hard and faithful work, not just because we show up and glisten. You show me a church that has 98% backsliders in it and 2% people that are pouring themselves out and the Holy Spirit is still gonna bless that 2%. But oftentimes the 2% gets a little discouraged and quits doing what God has called them to do because of that, those that aren't pulling their way. Now, my point is Acts 13 turns on its head the modern excuse for why churches aren't moving forward. Acts 13 puts on blast how one man And I'm not trying to say one person can make that big of a difference, but I am saying one man decided he was going to do whatever he had to do to serve the Lord. And this is kind of the whole translation of it all. Paul wasn't going to let someone get in the way of his obedience to the Lord. That's the whole moral of this. Paul wasn't going to let somebody else get in the way of his obedience. And here's the thing that religion does. Religion gives us excuses to lay our faithfulness down because other people aren't doing it either. How many times have you been discouraged at work, discouraged at home, discouraged at church because the most people are not pulling their weight? And what does that cause you to do? It causes you to not get the blessing available to you because of the obedience that you can bring to the table. Is this easy? Not not at all. It's not easy. The devil is trying to discourage us at all times. But I want you to replace Paul with your own name. And can that be said about you? That I'm not going to let somebody else get in the way of my obedience. Listen, when we line up with this example, we have no room to talk or point the finger. Religion loves to prevent the church from its goals. And and I know what people say. People say, well, isn't there a story in the Old Testament where somebody's sin was in the camp? And I know the story of Achan very well. I've preached it and believe it should be preached. But I believe that that story often is preached in in such misappropriated context that it actually hurts the church. The whole point of that story is that God tells Joshua to get up and do what he knows to do, not wonder who else is not doing what they have not done. The New Testament makes it clear that while, yes, it's a team effort, we must all work together. But that's not an excuse for me and my obligation to obey in the way I've been called and can serve him. And listen, I've heard a lot of people say, you know what, Justin, I'm not, you know, I've got to go somewhere where I feel like everybody's doing, you know, more, you know. And that's that's attractive. And that's what people do. And that's what the the world kind of religion kind of allures people with. But all that is, all that is is a temptation to walk away from what God has called us to do. We so easily allow people to get in the way of our obedience. Now, I love how Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter two or Galatians six. Listen to what he says. He does tell us that we should bear each other's burdens. Now, this isn't the point in the finger kind of bearing burden. This is a, hey, I love you and I wanna help you because I want us all to get through this together. But this is what he says after that. Let each One, test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So what does Paul tell us in Galatians? That we must pull our weight. Ultimately, we can't allow someone else to hold us back. Because 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body. Now body, I think there is, is, is twofold, our physical body, but also the church body. 
So we are going to be held accountable for what we did. And there will be no, well, you see, I would have done this, but you see, it just it wasn't, really, it wasn't really working out there. People weren't really cooperating with me. Of course, God judges in a good and gracious way, but we are accountable for what we have been called to do. Here's what we find out often in Acts. A lot of the church actually opposes what Paul is doing. In Acts 15, we see an entire council comes against him. The majority of the established Jerusalem church is against him. Paul writes in Galatians that both Peter and James withstood him, his approach and his efforts, many times. Yet he pushed pushed past that resistance and still made this undeniable, incredible difference. Now, you may think, well, Justin, this this approach is kind of aggressive. It's kind of stern. Maybe it is. Because Paul is a trailblazer for how to get things done in the church. And the reason I'm telling you this is because more often than not, and maybe it's because of our egos, maybe it's because of our flesh, maybe it's just because how it is. More often than not, you will feel like you do more than somebody else does. And religion is waiting in the weeds, ready to pounce and convince you, well, of course you do more than everyone else does. So you shouldn't do anything else. Or you should sit back and look at other people with disdain and with judgment. Religion is waiting and watching for you to do this in your marriage, to do this towards your children, to do this in your workplace, to do this in your church. Religion and the enemy is waiting at all times to try to turn your drivenness and your determination into a bitterness. It happens to the best of us. And the reason I warn you about that is because Paul exhibited a resilience that if we would just adopt, we could make a difference and we could withstand that temptation. So I guess moral of the story is no one person can do everything. I get that. But if we stop and wait on everyone to do everything, none of us will do anything. You could bottle up the last 10 minutes of me rambling into that statement. And if you didn't get the rest of that, maybe, you'll get, maybe that's clear. No one person can do everything. But if we stop and wait on everyone to do everything, none of us will do anything. Does that make sense? Don't let the devil stunt your growth because someone else isn't being obedient. Your own obedience is too important to fulfill. And the blessing available for you is too great to miss. Now, we see that Paul always has room and makes room for more. He's not on an ego trip. Now, Paul has never, you never find Paul saying, look at me. This is not about saying, hey, look at what I'm doing. Paul never does that. He's just simply on a mission for the gospel. If that makes him seem a bit extreme, that's just his game face. When he's on the field and he's got the ball, he doesn't let anything stop him from getting to the goal. The question is, do you have a game face like that when you're serving the Lord? Now, listen, there's emotions involved. I mean, we get our feelings hurt. We get frustrated. There's a lot of, emo- there's a lot of ourselves on the line here and we get discouraged. I understand that. We get frustrated. I understand that. We want to quit more often than not. I understand that. But if I didn't use my position to kind of help hold the mirror up sometimes and show us that, then I wouldn't be doing my job. 
We have a lot of game faces for the things of this world, that's for sure. We are hard pressed to be peeled away from those things. And let, and a, let a little bit of difficulty set in within the church. We will say, well, you know what? It's not worth my time. When it's really worth our lives, it's really worth everything. The reason why the church hits rut and stalls out once every generation or so is because drifts from this proven method and pathway. But if we all had this attitude, this winsome spirit that Paul had, boy, there's no telling what we could do. If you read Paul's letters, you know that Paul expected a lot of his readers out of the church, but he never expected anything out of them that he did not also expect out of himself. Do you hear that? And, and I hope this is transparent when I preach. I don't want anybody thinking I'm up here saying, do this, do this, do this, because, hey, I don't, it's not important for me. I, I, I would never say that I expect this from you, that I don't expect it from myself. Anybody that holds the word of God and says, hey, do this, do as I say, not as I do, they're hypocrite and get away from them. But the apostle Paul never expected anything out of us that he did not also expect out of himself. We covered this last week, but we didn't look at these verses from 1 Corinthians 9, but this is what Paul says. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. What he's saying there is, I, I'm not trying to say, oh, look at what I've done, and y'all need to do more because I've done more, and I've done enough, and I'm done for my time. Paul's not saying that. What does he say there? For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So what is Paul doing here? He's internalizing this, and he's making this, he's applying this to himself before he's applying it to anybody else. He's holding himself to the fire. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was truly his generation's Isaiah. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 when God said, Whom shall I send? What does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me. Now, again, I don't want to paint the picture of Paul here in Acts 13 rolling his sleeves up saying, I'm the only one, let me do it. What I do want to make clear is that Paul was willing to go even when many or most weren't willing to go. That's why the Holy Spirit sent him on this mission. And we are called likewise to do what Paul did, to adopt this whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel way of life. He changed his name. He changed his approach. He changed his priorities. You could almost say he denied himself. He took up his cross. You've heard that before, haven't you? If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his or her cross and follow me. What if, what if we, come on, what if all of us lived by this? And you know what? When the excuses came our way, we would check with this verse and say, you know what? I got, you know, I got to deny myself. Myself feels this way. No, 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 deny that. I've got to do this because God has called me to do this. I've got to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus. What if we all had that singular, narrow focus about us? You know, you've, I don't want to get in the flesh. Y'all work with some people that, that, that frustrate you, haven't you? You've worked beside people that just make you just want to, you know, and sometimes you're related to them. I, there are days when you feel like, you know what, this is not worth it. That's in the secular world, but isn't that the same for the church? There are days when it gets so difficult to stay focused. 
happens at home, happens at work, and boy, does it happen at church, doesn't it? But what if we just live by this? Deny ourselves. That doesn't mean say, hey, I don't matter. That just means that thing in you that wants to raise up and say no, say, hey, you don't have a place. You don't have a voice. You are not going to decide what's right for me because I'm going to follow the one who has died for me. This is the assumed posture of our hearts as we read this passage. Every chapter in Acts, we've got to enter into it with this kind of posture. If we can't enter in with this posture, we might want to reconsider lest we waste our time. You say, well, that's a little intense, Justin. This may be, you know, I don't, I don't really want to preach this tonight because it kind of comes across as me being intense and kind of mean-spirited. And I'm not being mean-spirited. I'm just trying to present it to you like I think the Bible presents it to us. And what I see in the church more than anything right now is a, 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 an ease and a tendency and a nature to make excuses. Isn't it just in line with what Jesus taught, what the New Testament teaches, what the early church is embodying and demonstrated that we can't let those things get in the way? You know, yes, it, maybe it sounds intense, but if it is too intense we've either been persuaded and preoccupied by the world or we've been blinded and burnt out by religion and I think that's the most the biggest thing for church members religion makes us bitter so many church members and we are so bitter by because of religion we don't have joy and, and religion makes you look at everything but Jesus Religion says, hey, look at what I've done. Look at what they haven't done. If you have been burnt out and made bitter by religion, listen, there's something better. There's somebody better. There's joy. I've had people tell me, Justin, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I've even imagined church like that. I promise you it can be like that. If you trust Jesus, you find joy in him, you can be freed and you can find the joy that comes, by ser- comes from serving him and, 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 and letting him change our private, public, personal lives for the glory of his kingdom, for the direction that he gives us. As we move on, we'll look at just the first of many examples of Paul's ministry. It's important to remember this backdrop. Uh, and we're going to see in just, uh, just a few minutes that we spend with the, with the rest of 13, we're going to see how Paul encounters a group of people who, who allow this very mindset to keep them from getting what God, what God offers them, what Paul offers them. Uh, so Paul's routine visit when he goes to the new towns, uh, when he goes to these towns, is to visit the local synagogue because he believed that the Jewish people would be more likely to believe because they had already half the story given to them in the Old Testament. So he would go to the synagogues and preach the gospel, hoping that they would very easily believe and it didn't always work out. Um, now, we don't know if the synagogue elder that he visits in this first town knew him uh, from his Jewish uh, prominence or whether they just recognized him as a Jewish man and paid respect to him as a visitor. Uh, but this first episode, it, it has to be a God thing. Paul is pretty much given the floor. Um, if you look at number, verse number uh, 15, um, he goes to the synagogue and after the re- reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say on. And of course, Paul stands up and starts preaching. Now, I don't think that the synagogue leader thought he was going to preach Jesus. I think the synagogue leader, because of what was custom, thought he was a visiting Jew from another town and thought, hey, the right thing to do is give them respect and, and, and say, hey, you know, we're welcoming our visitors into town. Would you tell us who you are and where you're from and hey, why you're here? Paul didn't say, 
by the way, can I preach? But he just took the floor. He was a little bit bolder than we would be. Um, but uh, Paul's first missionary journey took him to, uh, from Antioch to another Antioch. So you see Antioch on the right side of your screen. That's Antioch in Syria, just north of Israel. So Paul went to the island of Cyprus. He went up to the mainland that is modern day Turkey or Galatia in the biblical times. And he goes straight north to a town called Pisidian Antioch, or it was just called Antioch. It was just another, another town named Antioch. So he goes to this uh, synagogue in this town called Antioch, and here's his approach. And he uses his approach again and again in the book of Acts. Uh, he approaches the Jewish people by anchoring his message in God's promised fulfillment to Abraham and David. So if you read Paul's sermons in Acts 13 and Acts 14, and really any other time he goes to a synagogue, he kind of recycles the same message. I'm here as a messenger of God. He retraces their history, much like Stephen did, much like Peter did. There was God, there was Abraham, there was Israel, there was Moses, there was David. God promised Moses, God promised David that a Messiah would come. I know who the Messiah is. So that's the format he goes through every time. God established Israel. Israel was given promises. God has fulfilled those promises in Christ. That was his strategy every single time. And in verse 23, he gets to the conclusion of his message uh, by building off of David. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. And he goes on to tell them that Jesus is a man who was just alive and was just in his ministry and was killed and rose again the third day. So he goes through that cycle um, in this chapter, verse 26, he gives his invitation. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even their voices, the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. That is such a big, big statement that Paul makes there. Paul warns us of a mistake made by the religious rituals of the Jews Israel's leaders proved the word to be true in that they rejected Jesus and opened the door for somebody else to receive his promise. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, hey, y'all, I wouldn't be here if the church in if, if the leaders of Jerusalem had received Christ, then you know, the, the, we probably would never left Israel. But they rejected him. So therefore, the church got started because people who should have accepted Jesus did not accept Jesus. And therefore, I'm here on a missionary journey. Now, Paul knew how this was going to go. He knew the Jewish people would not accept Jesus here just like they did not accept him in Jerusalem. But he's trying to prove a point. Paul says, I'm here because people back in Jerusalem did not accept this message. So I'm giving you an opportunity in their place. God put this in front of Israel. They passed on it. And the story of Acts is that somebody else reaps the reward for what are other people sowed. Ultimately, the Jewish people as a whole would largely reject the gospel. But Paul was Jewish and many of the course, many other Jews believed. But I think the spiritual message here is this. When God puts his word and his way in front of us, we will prove its value in the joy we find 
or the joy those who take our place find. You hear that? What does Paul say in verse 27? They fulfilled, they proved the word of God to be true, not because they reaped the benefits, but because when they rejected Jesus, somebody else came along and accepted him. They condemned him, but a whole other group got in because of that. And what I think is true for us is when God puts his word in front of you and God puts his way in front of you, when God puts opportunities to serve him in front of you, you will always prove it to be true. You will always prove there is joy to be found in serving God one of two ways. In that you experience the joy or somebody comes along after you and gets the joy you could have had. I think that's what Paul is saying here to these Jewish people. That y'all can either accept this or there is literally a whole world out there that is knocking the door down to get some hope. Don't allow religion to jade you and embitter you. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't allow your own flesh to get in the way of this because God will get somebody's attention whether he gets ours or not. So what happens again and again in Acts is that the Jewish people reject the message as presented by Paul. He then takes the gospel to the streets and tells everyone that, hey, I'm gonna expound on that more next Saturday at the synagogue. His message all over town is verse 38 and 39. He says, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So that's his gospel to the Jews. That's the gospel he preaches to the whole town. He tells them that it's been predicted that they would reject him. So what happens after this is verse 42. When the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So Paul goes and preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. They want to hear more. Paul says, you'll come to the synagogue next Saturday. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath against the, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, when it says almost the whole city, the majority of the city was Gentiles. So this means that Gentiles were filling the synagogue. That had never happened. And honestly, the Jewish people would have pulled their hair out if it did happen. And when it did happen, they were ready to do whatever they had to do to get them out of there. But it was beyond them because there were too many. Verse 45, 44. 45, when the Jews saw the multitudes that they were filled with, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blasphemy, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. So this whole building's full of Gentiles. That completely throws the Jews off, uh, off, their, off their rocker. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of every everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So again, this was all to prove a point that the Jewish people of that generation rejected the gospel. God had somebody else ready to receive it. That was the Gentiles. He says, hey, that this was all part of prophecy. Verse 47, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord as many as had been appointed to enter to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
If you read the book of Acts, this is the cycle again and again and again. The Jews reject, the Gentiles believe, a mix, a mix in with a few Jewish converts. New communities of Jesus' followers are born and thus churches are established. This is one of the first churches in the area of Galatia. Paul would write to several churches there in Galatia. This is the first one that was established. I think we can bring this message full circle by thinking about how essential the Jews passed, essentially the Jews passed on the very thing that they'd been waiting for. For different religious reasons, they said no, and thus the Gentiles were there to receive it with open and hungry arms and hungry hearts. I think the correlation for us is to consider this question. How hungry are we for God's word, God's will, God's way, and God's work to serve him? How hungry are we? How quick are we to make excuses? How swift are we to receive what God has for us? I just want you to monitor it. I'm not trying to judge you or make you feel bad. If it makes you feel bad, then hey, there's always a way to get better and feel better. I just want you to monitor yourself this next week. Pay attention to how quick you are to get angry at people. How quick you are to say, yeah, God, but what about them? How quick you are to defer what you should do because someone else isn't doing something that they should do. Just pay attention to that. Just make notes of it. And yeah, you'll feel bad at first and and hopefully you'll repent and, and get better. But the point of it is, pay attention to what happened in this chapter. God went to the Jewish people who should have been the first ones in line. And they rejected him. And you had these Gentile people who had never heard of Moses, David, Abraham, or any of this. And God proves a point by saying even they could get saved, and they did. Because they were hungry. And they didn't point the finger and say, what about them? (laughs) They were greedy. They were like, you know, ready at at the meal hall. They were saying, what about us? I want whatever I can get. Maybe you remember when you were that hungry for God's word. Wouldn't it be great to feel that way again? You can. I want you to notice also the contrast between verse 46 and 48. Verse 46, Paul says the Jewish people proved themselves or showed themselves unworthy of eternal life, while these Gentiles proved themselves appointed to eternal life. You know, our lives show show one or the other. We either show ourselves unworthy or prove ourselves appointed with the lifestyles that we live, the priorities that we have, the way that we, the life that we reflect. Again, I love the way this chapter ends, verse 51, Paul and Barnabas just dust this off. Not gonna let this get in our way, not gonna let this discourage us. We got more people to go to, we got more things to do. We're not gonna let you get in our way or you discourage us. This chapter began with John Mark saying, I'm out. This chapter ends with an entire synagogue saying, we don't want it. And what does Paul do both times? Keep on going on. I'm not going to let y'all get, get, get me down or discourage me. I'm going to keep moving forward because that's what I've been called to do. Paul and Barnabas always had a game face. They always dusted off rejection. They always moved forward. They portrayed the importance of the mo- movement and the joy that was on the line. No one could ever question their motives based on how the Gentiles responded. No one could question theirs either. The question is, can anyone question ours? Can anyone question ours? I know it's hard in this life, but we should be the most joyful, the most peaceful, uh, the most driven people on the face of the earth. 
There shouldn't be an ounce of bitterness, an ounce of frustration, an ounce of uh, ingratitude. Yet there are in a lot of us, isn't there? God can take care of that. God can remove that. God can replace that with better things. That we might would prove ourselves as appointed to something greater uh, and something better. Church, I know this is a lot to consider. I hope this is something that we'll take serious because this is what made a difference in the early world, ancient world. This is what got the church off the ground. And if we would only have this about us in a world that is not 100% on our side, far from it, in a world that makes it easy to get discouraged and frustrated, in a world that gives us plenty of things to point our fingers at, are you letting that get in the way of your goal of eternal life? kind of silly when you think about it to let something get in the way of Jesus to get in the way of joy get in the way of peace get in the way of our blessing that we can receive through our obedience you're not going to be judged by what somebody else didn't do you're not going to be judged by what somebody else kept you from doing we're going to be judged by what we were called to do and whether we did it or not that's what's on the line let's not let anything get in the way of that Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for being straight with us with your word. Thank you for not cutting corners and not holding back. Thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul. God, if I would have been him, I would have quit. I would have had 20 meetings and I would have pulled my hair out and said, I'm out of here. I can't do this. There are days that I question, God, why should I do that? And why should I try? Why should I care? And, and Lord, forgive me of that. Lord, May you encourage all of us to pull our way and do our part, but let us not end up like these Jewish people who could have received your fullness, but let their self and their religion get in the way. God, I pray you might would show us all what our goal is, what our focus should be. Help us, Lord, to move anything out of the way that is, that is discouraging us and frustrating us. Help us to look above that and beyond that. Help us to look and keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us to wake up tomorrow and say, God, what have you called me to do? Here I am, send me. Lord, if we would do that in our marriages, if we would do that in our families, if we would do that in our workplaces, more importantly, if we would do that in our homes, how much different would our lives be? How much happier would we be? How much more content and at peace would we be? God, would you help us to overcome the world's frustration and the religion's bitterness would you help us to focus on you and find the joy that is available and not let the world steal it from us and not let religion take it from us? Lord, we know that you can and we trust that you will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.